That is why the labor hater and labor baiter is virtually always a twin-headed creature spewing anti-Negro epithets from one mouth and anti-labor propaganda from the other mouth. It's the first time I actually heard his voice. I read the transcript of this speech before, but hearing his voice um, and the way he uh, worked the crowd, I think that's one thing that doesn't come across in a transcript. It just, um, it blew me away. Marvin Fleming, a WBR3 trash collector in the Division of Sanitation, became the instrument through which one of the most deliberate and pernicious systems of racial discrimination in the district government was smashed. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. On December 11th, 1961, Dr. King spoke at the AFL-CIO's fourth constitutional convention at the Americana Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. The speech is not long, just 30 minutes, but it's tremendously historic in its content and its timing. In this speech, King connected the civil rights movement and the labor movement, calling them the two most dynamic and cohesive liberal forces in the country. King encouraged the AFL-CIO to help erase all vestiges of racial discrimination in American life, including labor unions as well as to provide financial support to the civil rights movement. Now, you can find many of King's speeches on YouTube, but not this one. Until recently, it was only preserved on a reel of tape in the Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park. But for this year's AFL-CIO Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil and Human Rights Conference, which started today and runs online through tomorrow, the AFL-CIO and the archives digitized the speech and gave us permission to bring it to you here on Labor History Today. When I first heard the speech, I was absolutely transfixed. Hearing words I'd only ever read before, spoken by King himself, it was as though I'd suddenly been transported through time to that ballroom in Miami Beach in 1961. But it also raised so many questions. How had King come to be there? What was the context for his quiet but powerful challenge to an almost certainly all-white roomful of American labor leaders? And what does that speech say to us now, 61 years later? Though, of course, I sat down for a brief chat with labor historian Joe McCartan, who, as it turns out, had also never heard this speech before and, as you'll hear, was blown away as well. Our other story today is the perfect follow-up to Dr. King's speech. It's about the fight by D.C. trash collector Marvin Fleming and his union, AFSME, against job discrimination in the 1960s. It's just 10 minutes and comes to us from AFSME archivist Stephanie Kaloya. We've mixed it with two versions of the civil rights classic, Everybody's Got a Right to Live, and I think you'll really enjoy it. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend, we rightfully remember the man who led the American Civil Rights Movement. But he was the first to remind us of the dignity of all labor. Here he is speaking in support of the Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike on March 18, 1968, just two weeks before he was assassinated. Let me say to you tonight, 
that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. Also this week, we bring you labor history in two from this date in 1898 and 1915. After our interview, Joe McCartan told me he'd been really happy to hear Dr. King's voice after what we both had to admit was a pretty bad week for civil rights here in Washington, D.C. It just made him feel better, he said. Me too. And hopefully, you as well. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. Discrimination does exist in the labor movement. It is true that organized labor has taken significant steps to remove the yoke of discrimination from its own body. But in spite of this, some unions governed by the racist ethos have contributed to the degraded economic status of the Negro. All right. So let me get you, first of all, just to uh, respond to, to hearing the speech, I think for the first time, right? This is the first time I actually heard his voice, Chris. I read the transcript of this speech before, but hearing his voice um, and the way he worked the crowd, I think that's one thing that doesn't come across in a transcript. It just, um, it blew me away to to think about this guy who's really then just 32 years old. You know, and, and um, he, it's such a skilled job of coalition building um, and, and a really difficult space with with a movement that had a history that was checkered on, on race. Uh, but, um, you know, to, to reach out to that movement, to look for common ground, to not overlook the um, problems that existed and to speak to all of that with with just tremendous um, grace and precision about, you know, we often hear the term beloved community invoked when we talk about what King was trying to build, but here you see it in action. How do you, how do you construct a beloved community uh, around a set of shared ideals um, with people who weren't always on your side? Um, uh, And there were some people in that room that still were from or led Unions that continued to bar uh, African American members, and so for King to to you know speak to the better angels of the labor movement's history, and to want to build on that, not shrinking away with, from the problems that existed, and to do it in the way he does in this speech, I think is remarkable. So you you sort of alluded to it, but let's let's sort of delve into to uh, you know provide some context for this because I think that was the thing that stood out to me was that you know he 
He starts out with a funny story, kind of gets them laughing. Um, I, I saw the, 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 the media archives, uh, you know, which worked with the AFL-CIO, you know, on putting this together along with a, a exhibit. I saw a photo that they, that they provided of King at the speech. And of course it's King with a whole bunch of old white guys on the podium behind him. <laughs> it's really kind of amazing. So give us, give us some context. Uh, this is 1961. That's right. 1961. And so King was uh, at that point, um, just about uh, at the sixth anniversary of his emergence as a leader, which began in the Montgomery bus boycott that happened, began on December 1st of 1955. So we're talking about six years later. Um, and what's emerged and what he's helped to lead is a nonviolent struggle, uh, a massive civil disobedience very often beginning in Montgomery, uh, leading to the birth of the organization that he led after that, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And then by 1960, being reinvigorated by young people really taking the lead um, by staging sit-ins um, and uh, moving um, nonviolent civil disobedience to a new state. So all of that was going on in the movement that King was leading at that point. John Kennedy had just been elected in 1960. In part, you know, his election was made possible by black votes and by a decision made by the Kennedy campaign uh, to reach out to make a call to Coretta Scott King while, while King himself was in jail for having taken part in a nonviolent demonstration in Atlanta. And when the news that the Kennedy uh, group had had reached out to to uh, Mrs. King, that really helped to galvanize greater turnout in the black vote. Kennedy won a very narrow election over Nixon. Um, in his first year in office, Kennedy was really trying to, you know, have it both ways on the question of civil rights. He was sympathetic to, you know, African-American demands, but he was also reluctant to endanger the political coalition he led. And the labor movement was also part of this. It, it had supported Kennedy's election, uh, but it was in some ways trying to walk a fine line on the issue of civil rights as well. Just two years earlier, the most prominent African-American union leader, A. Philip Randolph, had addressed the AFL-CIO convention, urging the union movement to do what King also asked them to do in this speech, to, to really root out the last vestiges of segregation in the movement and to uh, embrace the civil rights cause. What he got done with that speech, uh, the then president of the AFL, CIO, George Meany, who was still president, of course, when King spoke, um, uh, turned to Randolph and said, who in the hell appointed you the guardian of all the Negroes in America? Justice too long delayed is justice denied. When a Negro leader who has a reputation of purity and honesty, which has benefited the whole labor movement, criticizes it, his motives should not be reviled nor his earnestness rebuked. Instead, the possibility that he is revealing a weakness in the labor movement which it can ill afford should receive thoughtful examination. He, he um, resented um, Randolph kind of pushing the issue. But a lot had started to change in just two years' time, right? 
uh, in part due to this nonviolent struggle that was widening now, in part due to Kennedy being in office and taking some actions in the first year because the civil rights movement forced him to, um, to protect the, the riders on interstate buses, for example, the freedom rides that taken place in the spring of 1961. So a crossroads was being approached and the labor movement was going to have to decide to be fully on the side of civil rights or not. And King was there to, to nudge them in the right direction and to do it in a way that didn't, um, he didn't, uh, you know, uh, try to shame the labor movement for some things he could have done in its past. Uh, instead, he, he uh, pointed to the problems, but he also spoke eloquently to the common ground that basically said, we need each other. Uh, one of the great uh, quotes from, from the speeches uh, when he says, The labor hater and labor beta is virtually always a twin-headed creature spewing anti-Negro epithets from one mouth and anti-labor propaganda from the other mouth. So we need to unite against our common enemy is basically what he said. And it was a, a powerful articulation of that. And you could hear the room being increasingly persuaded uh, of the righteousness of his cause and of the logic of the need to be united in that cause. Do, what do we know about how, uh, how, how, the, how many or the AFL-CIO came to invite him to that convention? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it probably was not an obvious thing at that point. Well, you know, Phil Brandolph, Walter Ruzer, um, others, um, Ralph Halstein from the um, packing house workers and others have been strongly in the King camp. They had been pushing uh, to hear from King. And I think um, George Meany understood that, you know, this issue was emerging uh, in, a, in a powerful way and it had to be dealt with. And I think Meany understood that um, he needed to bring his, his movement along uh, in this direction. And ultimately, um, although Meany would not support the AFL, never endorsed the march on Washington right. later, um, it did strongly support the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, and many of its unions did endorse the march on Washington. Ruther's auto workers, for example, playing a big role in that march. Um, you know, Meany was always sensitive to the fact that there, you know, the labor movement included some still fairly conservative elements. And, um, I, I think uh, he, he was reluctant to see the movement divided, but I think he understood that one of the things that, uh, would have to happen is that people would need to be exposed to this, to the moral leadership, the voice of Martin Luther King, and that, you know, uh, he couldn't keep that voice out in effect by the end of 1961, that the labor movement had to reckon with what Martin Luther King uh, and um, civil rights advocates were producing. There are, at least to my ear, a, a lot of sort of um, echoes and uh, I'm trying to think of the word, not hints, but I mean, you know, here we are 61 years uh, later, it's easy for us to, to see things looking back, but what are some of the things that you hear in that speech? And, and again, hearing it, hearing hearing his voice with his cadences and his pauses, 
What are some of the things that, that stick out to you and resonate for you now, 61 years later? A few things. Um, I'm sure that listeners will, will note that, um, especially in the last part of the speech, you can hear almost word for word, uh, parts of the speech you will give, um, almost two years later, um, standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, um, at the culminating point of the March on Washington, and he will start to talk about his dream, mm-hmm. uh, and he will use that term dream. Um, so that you can see that, you know, some Amer- Americans might think, some people might think that that speech was, uh, just something written for the occasion, but it was something that had been developing and we've been building that speech over years in different audiences and assembling its parts. Uh, and, uh, in fact, you know, that's kind of what happened and he, he was really putting forward an important element to that speech um, before the AFL. The other thing that to notice though, is that when he talks about his dream, uh, in the way he does. Uh, uh, in this speech, um, it, it, it provides a corrective to, to what, uh, I think, especially some have tried to portray about King's I have a dream speech. They've sort of isolated in that speech, the idea of, I have a dream of a nation where, uh, one day a person will not, a person's character will not be judged by the color of their skin. Um, and, and indeed he says that in this speech. But what he says importantly in this speech is when he says what his dream is, he says, first, it's a dream of American democracy, a dream yet unfulfilled. He says, it's a dream of equality of opportunity, right? But he also says a dream of privilege and property widely distributed. Um, and these are important elements of what. Some people like to forget about King. It's like, yeah. all he wanted was equality of opportunity of, a, you know, an end to segregation. No, he understood that, um, black oppression was rooted in economic oppression that had to be addressed and it had to be addressed, uh, directly. This will be the day and we shall bring into full realization the dream of American democracy, a dream yet unfulfilled, a dream of equality of opportunity, of privilege and property widely distributed, a dream of a land where men will not take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. These were essential elements of his dream all along. I think that some people today would like to sort of forget those elements as if, you know, it was just about, um, you know, ending, uh, obvious, um, discrimination against people just on the basis of race. This was a dream about equality and democracy. This was a dream that recognized we cannot really have a democratic nation in which rampant inequality exists. We cannot have a democracy where people do take the necessities from the many to provide the luxuries for the few. And, you know, when I heard that line in this speech, um, yeah, I thought about today, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, taking the necessities from, you know, Amazon warehouse workers 
and using them to build spaceships to propel himself and some other wealthy people into space for a few minutes. This is exactly what King was warning us against. We can't have a society that does things like that. Right. And that is still a democracy. Uh, that still uh, is the dream of American democracy. Um, and so, you know, that's really what jumps out um, at me from your speech. So as we wrap up two things, um, one is I want, and you started to do it uh, in your last uh, comment, you know, thinking about what we take for 2022 and, and going forward, you know, from, from this speech. But the other thing is, is just as a historian, you know, as, uh, you know, being part of labor history today, I'm, I'm really curious, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the importance of the difference, the difference between reading, you know, something like this speech, which we both have, um, and we know, you know, many of the quotes uh, from this speech, and 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 hearing it and being able to actually hear it. So just 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 putting on your your labor historian hat, the, the difference between between those two media, if you will. Well, in the development of the human species, we learned to listen to each other's voices before we developed anything like, uh, you know, um, written languages, right? So there's something really powerful and elemental about the human voice and how especially the human voice can be used to persuade, to build community, to create, um, fellow feeling to create solidarity. Uh, written words are important. I'm, I'm, you know, spend a lot of my time writing and reading. So uh, I don't in any way want to denigrate that. But I think one of the wonderful things about our time and one of the wonderful things about the technology that you're using to bring history to people, you know, to be heard in their ear is that we're recovering voices. Uh, as um, things that have a special role to play, especially in movement, especially in, in movements that seek to empower the disempowered. Um, and, and here we just have a masterful example of how you do that, um, how you persuade, how you build, uh, how you build a, a coalition, right? And and in this moment and. and 2022 with all the difficulty we face right now um, to, to be reminded of the, the way to do it, um, the way to build what we're going to have to build, right? Um, if we're going to, to move forward, uh, this is a, a, an example of it. This is how you do it. This is from uh, somebody who really was a genius at it uh, and uh, at the young age of 32, was able to weld together, you know, a divided, um, suspicious in some ways set of relationships and to build past them to, to unite people around something bigger. Um, and, you know, uh, also what, what I think this helps us do, and, and I think the human voice does this in a, a unique way, is that it helps instill hope and you know, the king in no way uh, says that this is going to be easy. Uh, and he says, you know, what I'm asking you to do won't be easy. But nothing you've done has been easy. 
I am aware that this is not easy nor popular. But the eight-hour day was not popular nor easy to achieve, nor was a closed shop, nor was a right to strike, nor was outlawing anti-labor injunctions. But you accomplished all of these with a massive will and determination. And out of such struggle for democratic rights, you won both economic gains and the respect of the country. And you will win both again if you will make Negro rights a great crusade. You know, everything has been a struggle. And so he reminds people of that and he moves them past the, the sense of discouragement that some might feel. He, he says, you know, black people are impatient and you people in labor should know what that's like because you've had to struggle long, long decades to, to get anywhere. Um, but he moves people past impatience to, to possibility and to hope. Uh, hope is a great place to end. Joe McCartan, wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. President Meany, distinguished platform associates, delegates to the fourth Constitutional Convention of AFL-CIO, ladies and gentlemen. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be with you today. It is a privilege indeed to have the opportunity of addressing such a significant gathering. And I have looked forward to being with you with great anticipation. One while I thought that the forces of nature wouldn't cooperate with me enough in order to be here, for I left Los Angeles early this morning, and when I got to the airport, I discovered that the flight that I was to take out of Los Angeles had been canceled because of weather in Dallas and in Atlanta, so I was lucky enough to get a flight through Chicago, and certainly that was a joyous moment when I heard that I could go another way and get here. Of course, the flight was rather bumpy uh, all the way from Chicago to Miami, and I was very happy when we landed. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that I don't have faith in God in the air. It's simply that I've had more experience with him on the ground. <laughs> But it is a delightful privilege to be here, and I want to express my great appreciation to President Meany and the committee for extending the invitation. Less than a century ago, the laborer had no rights. <coughs> little or no respect, and led a life which was socially submerged and barren. He was hired and fired by economic despots whose power over him decreed his life or death. The children of workers had no childhood and no future. 
they too worked for pennies an hour. And by the time they reached their teens, they were worn out old men, devoid of spirit, devoid of hope, and devoid of self-respect. Jack London described a child worker in these words. He did not walk like a man. He did not look like a man. He was a travesty of the human. It was a twisted and stunted and nameless piece of life that shambled like a sickly ape, arms loose hanging, stoop-shouldered, narrow-chested, grotesque, and terrible. American industry organized misery into sweatshops and proclaimed the right of capital to act without restraints and without conscience. Victor Hugo, literary genius of that day, commented bitterly that there was always more misery in the lower classes and there was humanity in the upper classes. The inspiring answer to this intolerable and dehumanizing existence was economic organization through trade unions. The worker became determined not to wait for charitable impulses to grow in his employer. He constructed the means by which a fairer sharing of the fruits of his toil had to be given to him are the wills of industry which he alone turned would halt and wealth for no one would be available. This revolution within industry was fought bitterly by those who blindly believed their right to uncontrolled profits was a lord of the universe and that without the maintenance of the old order, catastrophe faced the nation. But history is a great teacher. Now everyone knows that the labor movement did not diminish the strength of the nation, but enlarged it by raising the living standards of millions. Labor miraculously created a market for industry and lifted the whole nation to undreamed of levels of production. Those who today attack labor forget these simple truths, but history remembers them. Labor's next uh, monumental struggle emerged in the 30s when it wrote into federal law the right freely to organize and bargain collectively. It was now apparently emancipated. In the days when workers were jailed for organizing and when in the English Parliament Lord Macaulay had to debate against a bill decreeing the death penalty for anyone engaging in a strike were grim but almost forgotten memories. And yet the Wagner Act, like any other legislation, tended merely to declare rights but did not deliver them. 
and labor had to bring the law to life by exercising in practice its rights over stubborn, tenacious opposition. It was warned to go slow, to be moderate, not to stir up trouble. But labor knew it was always the right time to do right. And it spread its organization over the nation and achieved equality organizationally with capital. The day of economic democracy was born. Negroes in the United States read this history of labor and find that it mirrors our own experience. We are confronted by powerful forces telling us to rely on the goodwill and understanding of those who profit by exploiting us. They deplore our discontent. They resent our will to organize so that we may guarantee that humanity will prevail and equality will be exacted. They are shocked that action organizations, sit-ins, civil disobedience and protests are becoming our everyday tools, just as strikes, demonstrations, and union organization became yours to ensure that bargaining power genuinely existed on both sides of the table. We want to rely upon the goodwill of those who would oppose us. Indeed, we have brought forward the method of nonviolence to give an example of unilateral goodwill in an effort to evoke it in those who have not yet felt it in their hearts. But we know that if we are not simultaneously organizing our strength, we will have no means to move forward. If we do not advance, the crushing burden of centuries of neglect and economic deprivation will destroy our will, our spirits, and our hopes. In this way, labor's historic tradition of moving forward to create vital people as consumers and citizens has become our own tradition and for the same reasons. This unity of purpose is not an historical coincidence. Negroes are almost entirely a working people. There are pitifully few Negro millionaires and few Negro employers. Our needs are identical with labor's needs, decent wages, fair working conditions, livable housing, old age security, health and welfare measures, conditions in which families can grow, have education for their children, and respect in the community. And that is why Negroes support labor's demands and fight laws which curb labor. And that is why the labor hater and labor beta is virtually always a twin-headed creature spewing anti-Negro epithets from one mouth 
and anti-labor propaganda from the other mouth. The duality of interests of labor and Negroes makes any crisis which lacerates you a crisis from which we bleed. And as we stand on the threshold of the second half of the 20th century, a crisis confronts us both. Those who in the second half of the 19th century could not tolerate organized labor have had a rebirth of power and seek to regain the despotism of that era while retaining the wealth and privileges of the 20th century. Whether it be the ultra-white right wing in the form of Birch societies, or the alliance which former President Eisenhower denounced, the alliance between big military and big business, or the coalition of southern Dixocrats and northern reactionaries, whatever the form, these menaces now threaten everything decent and fair in American life. Their target is labor, liberals, and Negro people, not scattered reds or even Justice Warren, former Presidents Eisenhower and Truman, and President Kennedy, who are in truth beyond the reach of their crude and vicious falsehoods. Labor today faces a grave crisis. Perhaps the most calamitous since it began its march from the shadows of want and insecurity. In the next 10 to 20 years, automation will grind jobs into dust as it grinds out unbelievable volumes of production. This period is made to order for those who would seek to drive labor into importancy by viciously attacking it at every point of weakness. Hardcore unemployment is now an ugly and unavoidable fact of life. And like malignant cancer, it has grown year by year and continues its spread. But automation can be used to generate an abundance of wealth for people or an abundance of poverty for millions as its human-like machines turn out human scrap along with machine scrap as a byproduct of production. And I am convinced that our society, with its ability to perform miracles with machinery, has the capacity to make some miracles for men if it values men as highly as it values machines. find a great design to solve a great problem, labor will have to intervene in the political life of the nation to chart a course which distributes the abundance to all instead of concentrating it among a few. The strength to carry through such a program requires that labor know its friends and collaborate as a friend. If all that I have said is sound, labor has no firmer friend than the 20 million Negroes whose lives will be deeply affected 
by the new patterns of production. Now to say that we are friends would be an empty platitude if we fail to behave as friends and honestly look to weaknesses in our relationship. And unfortunately there are weaknesses. Labor has not adequately used its great power, its vision and resources to advance Negro rights. Undeniably, it has done more than other forces in American society to this end. Aid from real friends in labor has often come when the flames of struggle heighten. But Negroes are a solid component within the labor movement and a reliable bulwark for labels whole program and should expect more from it exactly as a member of a family expects more from his relatives than he expects from his neighbors. Labor which made impatience for long delayed justice for itself a vital motive force cannot lack understanding of the Negro's impatience. It cannot speak with the reactionary's calm indifference of progress around some obscure corner yet not yet possible even to see. That is a maximum in the law. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. When a Negro leader who has a reputation of purity and honesty which has benefited the whole labor movement criticizes it, his motives should not be reviled nor his earnestness rebuked. Instead, the possibility that he is revealing a weakness in the labor movement which it can ill afford should receive thoughtful examination. A man who has dedicated his long and faultless life to the labor movement cannot be raising questions harmful to it any more than a lifelong devoted parent can become the enemy of his child. The report of a committee may smother with legal constructions a list of complaints and dispose of it for today. But if it bears a far larger truth, it has disposed of nothing and made justice more elusive. Discrimination does exist in the labor movement. It is true that organized labor has taken significant steps to remove the yoke of discrimination from its own body. But in spite of this, some unions governed by the racist ethos have contributed to the degraded economic status of the Negro. Negroes have been barred from membership in certain unions and denied apprenticeship training and vocational education. In every section of the country, one can find labor unions existing as a serious and vicious obstacle when the Negro seeks jobs or upgrading in employment. Labor must honestly admit these shameful conditions and design the battle plan which will defeat and eliminate them. In this way, Labor would be unearthing the big truth and utilizing its strength against the bleakness of injustice in the spirit of its finest traditions. 
How can... How can labor rise to the heights of its potential statesmanship and cement its bonds with Negroes to their mutual advantage? First, labor should accept the logic of its special position with respect to Negroes and the struggle for equality. Although organized labor has taken actions to eliminate discrimination in its ranks, the standard expected of you is higher than the standard for the general community. Your conduct should and can set an example for others, as you have done in other crusades for social justice. You should root out vigorously every manifestation of discrimination so that some internationals, central labor bodies, or locals may not besmirch the positive accomplishments of labor. I am aware that this is not easy nor popular, but the eight-hour day was not popular nor easy to achieve, nor was a closed shop, nor was a right to strike, nor was outlawing anti-labor injunctions. But you accomplished all of these with a massive will and determination. And out of such struggle for democratic rights, you won both economic gains and the respect of the country. And you will win both again if you will make Negro rights a great crusade. Second, the political strength you are going to need to prevent automation from becoming a Moloch, consuming jobs and contract gains, can be multiplied if you tap the vast reservoir of Negro political power. Negroes given the vote will vote liberal and labor because they need the same liberal legislation labor needs. To give just an example of the importance of the Negro vote to labor, I might cite the arresting fact that the only state in the South which repealed the right to work law is Louisiana. And this was achieved because the Negro vote in that state grew large enough to become a balance of power. And it went along with labor to wipe out anti-labor legislation. Thus, <laughs> thus support to assist us in securing the vote can make the difference between success and defeat for us both. You have organizing experience we need, and you have an apparatus unparalleled in the nation. You recognized five years ago a moral opportunity and responsibility when several of your leaders, including Mr. Meany, Mr. Ruther, Mr. Dubinsky, and Mr. McDonald and others, projected a $2 million campaign to assist the struggling Negroes fighting bitterly in handicapped circumstances in the South. A $10,000 contribution was voted by the ILGWU to begin the drive, but for reasons unknown to me, the drive was never begun. The cost to us in lack of resources during these turbulent, violent years is hard to describe. We are mindful that many unions, 
thought of as immorally rich, in truth have problems in meeting the budget to properly service our members. So we do not ask that you tax your treasurers. Indeed, we ask that you appeal to your members for one dollar apiece to make democracy real for millions of deprived American citizens. For this, you have the experience, the organization, and most of all, the understanding. And if you would do these two things now in this convention, resolve to deal effectively with discrimination and provide financial aid for our struggle in the South, this convention will have a glorious moral deed to add to an illustrious history. The two most dynamic and cohesive liberal forces in the country are the labor movement and the Negro freedom movement. Together we can be architects of democracy in a South now rapidly industrializing. Together we can retool the political structure of the South, sending to Congress steadfast liberals who, joining with those from northern industrial states, will extend the frontiers of democracy for the whole nation. Together we can bring about the day when there will be no separate identification of Negroes and labor, that is no intrinsic difference as I have tried to demonstrate. Differences have been contrived by outsiders who seek to impose disunity by dividing brothers because the color of their skin has a different shade. I look forward confidently to the day when all who work for a living will be one with no thought of their separateness as Negroes, Jews, Italians, or any other distinctions. This will be the day when we shall bring into full realization the dream of American democracy, a dream yet unfulfilled, a dream of equality of opportunity, of privilege and property widely distributed, a dream of a land where men will not take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few, a dream of a land where men will not argue that the color of a man's skin determines the content of his character, a dream of a nation where all our gifts and resources are held not for ourselves alone, but as instruments of service for the rest of humanity, the dream of a country where every man will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. That is a dream. And as we struggle to make racial and economic justice a reality, let us maintain faith in the future. At times we confront difficult and frustrating moments in the struggle to make justice a reality, but we must believe somehow that these problems can be solved. That is a little song that we sing in the movement taking place in the South. It goes something like this, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. 
and somehow all over America, we must believe that we shall overcome and that these problems can be solved and they will be solved. Before the victory is won, some of us will have to get scarred up, but we shall overcome. Before the victory of justice is a reality, some may even face physical death, but if physical death is a price that some must pay to free their children and their brothers from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing could be more moral. Before the victory is won, some more will have to go to jail. We must be willing to go to jail and transform the jails from dungeons of shame to havens of freedom and human dignity. Yes, before the victory is won. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood. Some will be dismissed as dangerous rabble-rousers and agitators. Some will be called reds and communists merely because they believe in economic justice and the brotherhood of man. But we shall overcome, and I am convinced that we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullard Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And so if we will go out with this faith and with this determination to solve these problems, we will bring into being that new day and that new America, when that day comes, the fears of insecurity and the doubts clouding our future will be transformed into radiant confidence, into glowing excitement to reach creative goals, and into an abiding moral balance where the brotherhood of man will be undergirded by a secure and expanded prosperity for all. Yes, this will be the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands all over this nation and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Thank you. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking on December 11, 1961 at the AFL-CIO's fourth constitutional convention at the Americana Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. Our next story is the perfect follow-up to Dr. King's speech. It's about the fight by D.C. trash collector Marvin Fleming and his union, AFSCME, against job discrimination in the 1960s. It comes to us from AFSCME archivist Stephanie Kaloya, and we have mixed it with two versions of the civil rights classic, Everybody's Got a Right to Live. And I think you'll really enjoy it. 
is coming up right after Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1898. That was the day workers in the textile mills of New Bedford, Massachusetts, walked out on strike. They were organized along craft lines into five different unions. Regardless of craft, mill owners inflicted a 10% wage cut, which would prove devastating given the fact that whole families worked in the mills. When the wage cut took effect, spinners effectively shut down 22 mills owned by nine companies. Having formed an amalgamated strike committee, weavers, loom fixers, carters, and slasher tenders all stayed away in support. Workers' leaders like Samuel Gompers, Eugene V. Debs, and Daniel DeLeon of the Socialist Labor Party all visited the strikers to give encouragement and inspiration. Debs alone acknowledged the role of women in the strike as workers, and not just as wives, mothers, daughters, or sisters. Before the strike, there had all already been discord over strike demands. The weavers insisted on adding the fines issue. They constituted 40% of mill workers and their job duties included correcting the mistakes of other trades. Manufacturers routinely fined weavers for material deemed imperfect, yet still profited from selling their products. The fine system wrought havoc on weaver families, and they wanted it abolished. The rest of the unions sympathized with their plight, but insisted the strike would fail unless they focused solely on the issue of wage cuts. The weavers persisted and the demand stuck. By April, the strike collapsed. Workers went back with nothing gained. But the strike proved that workers across craft lines could strike and support each other in an industrial manner. It also proved that men and women workers could effectively organize a strike and pick it together. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. Everybody's got a right to live. Everybody's got a right to live. And before this campaign fail, we all go down in jail. Everybody's got a right to live. On my way to Washington, feeling mighty sad. Thinking about an income that I never had. Everybody's got a right to live. Several years ago, Marvin Fleming, at that time a WBR3 trash collector in the Division of Sanitation, became the instrument through which one of the most deliberate and pernicious systems of racial discrimination in the district government was smashed. I came across this letter dated September 8, 1967, while processing the AFSCME Local 1 Washington, D.C. records as part of my job at the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University. I immediately wanted to know more. Who was Marvin Fleming? What did he go through? Where is he now? How many other stories are out there of people smashing pernicious forms of discrimination that we don't know about? The letter continues with some clues. Over the determined resistance of Mr. Roeder, Division Chief, and Mr. Red, Chief of the Incineration and Trash Collection Branch, Mr. Fleming was able to receive on-the-job training as a crane operator without first serving an apprenticeship as a waymaster. He has since been the subject of repeated harassment. Marvin Fleming was a member of AFSCME Government Workers Union Local 1, Washington, D.C., 
The local consisted of employees in the public health, public welfare, buildings and grounds, and sanitary engineering. Since at least 1960, the local began to push hard against racist practices within D.C. government employment. The April 1966 issue of AFSCME's Public Employee magazine said, quote, Job discrimination was a basic fact of life. The division of sanitation was worst of all. Not even token steps had been taken toward opening the higher-grade skilled jobs to black men. Warren Morse, business agent for the union who handled member grievances, noted in 1964 that most of these 1,600 sanitation workers in the district were black, and yet the higher-grade positions were primarily occupied by white men. For a long time until the union got involved, there was no formal promotion policy at all, resulting in nepotism and the promotion of white workers far more often than black workers. Black man dug the pipeline, both night and day. Black man did the work, while the white man got the pay. Now look here, Congress, this is a brand new day. No more full-time work, no more part-time pay. Everybody's got a right to live. Everybody's got a right to live. And before this campaign fails, we're all down in jail. In other correspondence found in the collection, Morse charged that when white men were hired for entry-level jobs, they were assigned tasks such as fetching coffee. They had extra time for on-the-job training to learn higher-skilled tasks, enabling them to be promoted. Meanwhile, black workers completed the, quote, dirty and arduous tasks, such as trash collection, sweeping floors, and cleaning trucks. One of the higher-skilled jobs was that of crane operator. To be a crane operator, you first needed promotion to waymaster. To be waymaster, you had to know how to operate a crane. Since black workers were not able to get that on-the-job training, they were effectively shut out of the promotion process. The union recommended a training program to make the higher grades accessible to all. Though the sanitation division initially agreed, they did not follow through, and the union had to keep pressing for it. Eventually, Fleming was able to get the training, as alluded to in the letter, he was then harassed by management with letters of reprimand for very questionable reasons. I believe he did get his promotion, but that's about where his case goes cold. Through the course of searching for Fleming, I also came across George Tillman. In the public employee article mentioned earlier, Tillman was described as a militant who was largely responsible for the local's efforts to battle racism. He chaired a civil rights committee within the local, which first met in 1963 about a week after the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The notes from that meeting stated a desire to capitalize on momentum from the march and address the issue of job discrimination. This small step of forming a civil rights committee was most likely a direct precursor for Marvin Fleming getting his promotion. Tillman became vice president of Local 1, and later, when the local was organized into District Council 20, he became president of the new Sanitation Local 2091. I have no doubt there are stories like these from across the country, AFSCME members and others fighting injustice in small and big ways who don't get much attention. People like George Tillman, the militant who led the union's efforts against discrimination, and Marvin Fleming, the man who smashed one of the most deliberate and pernicious forms of racial discrimination in district government employment. Everybody's
is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1915. It was the day that the people of Chicago stood up to demand an end to hunger and unemployment. Their stand began at a meeting at Bowen Hall, part of the Hall House complex founded by Nobel Prize winner Jane Addams. The number of unemployed had grown across the country due to an economic recession. A harsh winter had made the situation even more desperate in Chicago for thousands of out-of-work and homeless people. 900 people crowded into the hall for the meeting of the League of the Unemployed. More stood outside, straining to hear the speeches. One of the speakers was the fiery Lucy Parsons, the wife of one of the Haymarket martyrs. At the front of the hall hung a black banner emblazoned with one word in white letters, hunger. Those attending the meeting decided to march to City Hall to express their demand for work. Some in the crowd carried banners. One read, why starve in the midst of plenty? Another demanded, give us this day our daily bread. This banner was fittingly carried by Episcopal priest John Tucker, known affectionately as Friar Tuck. 1,500 people marched that day, and with them, they had a new anthem to sing as they marched. For the first time, Ralph Chaplin introduced his song, The Labor Anthem, Solidarity Forever. As the march made its way downtown, it was met by the Chicago police. Brandishing batons, the police dispersed the marchers. More than 20 were arrested, including Lucy Parsons and Friar Tuck. Now, more than a century later, Solidarity Forever is still sung when working people gather to stand up united. Solidarity Forever Solidarity Forever Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com I woke up this morning with my that's it for this week's edition of labor history today you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app and even better if you like what you hear and we hope you do please like it in your podcast app pass it along leave a review that really helps folks to find the show Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. 
Very special thanks this week to the AFL-CIO and the Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park for permission to use the speech by Dr. King at the 1961 AFL-CIO convention. You can find out more about the AFL-CIO Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil and Human Rights Conference that's going on right now on their website at aflcio.org. Thanks also to Stephanie Kaloya for her wonderful report on the fight by D.C. trash collector Marvin Fleming and his union AFSCME against job discrimination in the 1960s. Stephanie is AFSCME's archivist at the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University. She's available to provide research assistance on AFSCME's history, and you can reach her at Escaloya, that's S-C-A-L-O-I-A, at wayne.edu, or at AFSCME Archivist on Twitter. We've got links in the show notes. Our music today included Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around by The Roots, Everybody's Got a Right to Live, performed by Frederick Douglass Kirkpatrick and Jimmy Collier, who wrote the song, and by the soul chants, and woke up this morning by the freedom singers. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.